to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Aurelie Perrier. Today's episode is part of our series of podcasts on North Africa that are also available on the Tajin website. Uh, visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to get access to that complete series. We've got a lot of great episodes on the history of Morocco uh, and also on the history of Algeria, uh, which is mostly what we're going to be talking about today. Our guest is Miriam Holly Davis. She's assistant professor of history at UC Santa Cruz, uh, newly appointed. Congratulations, Miriam. Thank you. Very happy to have you on the podcast today. Happy to be here. So Miriam's author of a dissertation entitled Producing Your Africa, Development, Agriculture, and Race in Algeria. Uh, the period on that is 1958-1965. Uh, and we'll be talking broadly about that subject and really narrowly focusing in on a subset of that research, which is the question of how colonial development projects uh, intersect with race and the social sciences in the midst of the Algerian War, what Algerians remember is the War of Independence from French colonialism. So before we get into some of the uh, details of today's conversation, which are the subject of an article, which is available on our website, autumnhistorypodcast.com, and the bibliography, uh, Mariam, I want to ask you about the historiography of Algeria. Um, the war is certainly one of the most written about topics in the history of Algeria. Uh, but th- throughout the past decades in which it's been discussed, uh, the historiography has shifted in various different ways. So in order to sort of situate our discussion, I'd like to ask you um, if you could bring us up to date on sort of the way people are um, conceptualizing um, Algeria's place uh within the colonial system and also in the world during, you know, this moment of uh, transformation, post-World War II period? Thanks, Chris. That's a great question. I think that you're right. Um, Much of the historiography until the present has dealt with Algeria and France very narrowly. And um, the question of, is this a war of independence? Is this a civil war? Um, How do we make sense of the war itself? Mm -hmm. Occupied scholars for um, a number of years. I do think that now... Scholars are starting to put this in a more international frame. Mm -hmm. So you have Matt Connolly's work that was the first uh, really path-breaking research to show that the international component of the war played a major role, especially for the FLN, who sought international recognition uh, for the nationalist cause. And when you say international, what are some of those international uh, connections? Um, I think the United Nations has been one that's received, again, a lot of scholarly attention. Mm -hmm. So uh, that the FLN was able to garner the support of the UN to recognize an Algerian nation state was obviously very important. The U.S. as well, the U.S.'s role in in this either civil war or war independence, depending on how you uh, saw it at the time. Sure, yeah. Um, And so I think those are, I I have a a third kind of approach, which is looking at the uh, nascent European Union. So Mm -hmm. at the time, the European Economic Community, which was um, getting off the ground around the same time as the war was uh, being fought in Algeria. That's a very interesting point, and I mean, it's one that's also relevant in American historiography, if we think about the Vietnam War, which of course at one point was France's colonial war, and somehow became the U.S.'s war at a certain point. I mean, this is certainly something worth keeping in mind, but, you know, on on the subject of war, a lot lot of the writings on war tends to be about the subject of violence, and there's a lot of great work on sort of various aspects of violence, and particularly the way in in which France Fanon's work on Algeria has kind of informed broader discussions of uh, post-colonial uh, history. Uh, I think that when it comes to Algeria, maybe as Benjamin Brower talks about, violence is always just like 
so much uh, in the forefront of the discussion. Um, but I like that in, in your um, research, you're looking at a, another aspect of the war period, very much intertwined with the war as an event, as a, as a phenomenon as such, and yet not necessarily uh, directly tied to the issue of violence. Maybe we can talk about the extent to which it was, but you're essentially working on um, French uh, development. So France trying to develop Algeria as it's in the midst of what we later find out is going to be a war that will end its rule there. Right. So uh, maybe you can interest, introduce us to the Constantine plan, sure. this uh, development plan that France introduces in Algeria during the war. Yeah, so my dissertation looked at the Constantine Plan, which is announced by Charles de Gaulle as he comes to power in 1958 um, with kind of in a very dramatic fashion in the city of Constantine. Um, and it's a, a very ambitious initiative um, that both seeks to raise the standard of living of the Algerian population, mm-hmm. education initiatives, industrialization, um, education, etc. So it's, um, it's seen as a public relations attempt to show Algerians that, listen, if you stay with France, we're going to help you out. Um, and to be clear, the FLN has already gotten underway by 1958. There's already been a lot of resistance at this point. Absolutely. And it's, and it's um, around this time that the GPRA is starting to form, um, mm-hmm. so the, the, provis- the provisional government of Algeria. So mm-hmm. it's not um, unrelated to political developments on the ground. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about uh, how this Constantine plan signals a um, different strategy of the French government and how... Uh, the emphasis is less on sort of physical violence and perhaps on um, other kinds of epistemic or symbolic violences, or should we not see this as a form of violence at all? Um, well, there's, I guess, two parts to that question. There had been precursors to the Constantine plan. It didn't kind of fall. The, the French sure. didn't realize in 1958 that there was a development problem in Algeria. Yeah. But I think what makes it different from previous initiatives is, one, the amount of money that the French state is pouring into it. Mm-hmm. And the Mm -hmm. second, which interests me more, is the way it conceives of development. So the planners working on this are very conscious of the fact that it's not just about economic development, it's about social development. Mm -hmm. So they write, I mean, in the plan itself, that what's divisive, sorry, what's going to be decisive is not um, necessarily economic progress, but the transformation of social ideas, um, of psychological structures, and kind of creating a new rational subject in Algeria, uh, and, and rational not in terms of enlightenment thought, but in terms of economic rationality. Mm-hmm. So this is where I mm-hmm. see the Constantine plan as um, both interesting and a break uh, from what has happened before. In terms of violence, I think it's difficult um, to see it as an effective strategy of violence because the concrete results were so meager. But, for example, the, the recruitment camps are part of the Constantine sure. plan. Um, and there mm. you can see kind of the violence of the colonial state in a much more direct form. At the same time, when you're looking at uh, agricultural initiatives, which is something I pay attention to in my dissertation, mm-hmm. it's clear that their attempts um, to form agricultural collectives, for example, in, enact violence on a very local level and that farmers yeah. are unable to get kind of the wheat that they need. Um, the modernization attempts to introduce tractors are you know, kind of an epistemological violence on the way farming was done. Yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. at the same time, the concrete results of the plan were quite uh, disappointing 
Sure. Because of the war, right. precisely. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the recruitment policy. Uh, we, we have had an episode with Dorothe Kellu uh, and her discussed her research on those recruitment. I mean, it's really, a, they were moving a tremendous number of villagers out of their villages to different areas where they thought they could control them better. better. And I guess you're saying this is actually part of a, a development strategy as well. I mean, there were modernization discourses around recruitment, mm-hmm. but if you look at the propaganda for the Constantine plan, obviously they're not showing people images of the camps. Right. Um, and the word camp mm-hmm. itself is something that uh, is, you know, is a term they're trying to avoid. After the Second World War, it wasn't maybe the best PR for France to advertise <laughs> those camps. I mean, really. Exactly. Well, I, I find the notion of sort of social rather than economic development uh, very interesting. Could you expand on that maybe a little bit? Uh, maybe what you mean by developing different kinds of psychological structures and what does social development look like as opposed to economic development? Right. I mean, what is the conception of man that is put forth in in this project? Yeah, that's, um, that's definitely at the heart of what I'm trying to get at. And I make an argument that this is not unrelated from what's happening in France at the time. So the entire Tente Glorieuse, this period of you know, economic mm-hmm. prosperity in France, also comes about through a very liberal economic model. And the notion that what needs to happen is that people's attitudes need to change, France needs to be more open to the world, um, and this kind of strict protectionist state needs to introduce free trade in, in, a, in a regulated but, um, but certain way. And so in Algeria, the notion that there's going to be a third way of development um, is confronted with a different problem, and that is the fact that the population is Muslim. Uh, and so the planners, who a lot of, of them have come from either France or Europe, so something that always amazes people about the Constantine plan is that when de Gaulle is trying to find somebody to go to Algeria and take the reins of this plan, he chooses Paul de Louvrier, who had been working with Jean Monnet um, in Europe. So he knew nothing about Algeria. I mean, this is not somebody who has right. any mm-hmm. awareness of the population, of the right. culture, of the language. Um, and de Gaulle says, an economist will fix this for me. Hmm. Um, and, and an economist will be able to fix this because the economy hmm. has the capacity to transform these kind of violent subjects into rational, mm-hmm. um, rational calculating subjects. So it's part of the post-war story of economic development. But the specificity is that you are faced with a Muslim population, and are Muslims going to be able to be rational actors in the same way that Europeans are? <laughs> See, that's, yeah, that's very interesting, because when you say rational actor, I mean, that's like really at the heart of economics as a science, is that, that human beings as such uh, can be expected to behave in a certain way, economically speaking, right. as rational actors pursuing their rational economic interest. Right. Um, shouldn't be a problem, I guess, for application to other parts of the world. But uh, as we see in the colonial context, there is a, a tension in the discourse. Could you maybe unpack that a little for us? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the tension, it's, there's a great quote by one of my technocrats who says that his mission is to transform homo Islamicus into homo economicus. Okay. <laughs> so you really see these two models, I mean, kind of an essentializing, racialized notion yeah. of homo Islamicus on the one hand, and something we would recognize as a neoliberal idea of homo economicus. And it's not as simple as that. I'm not Uh saying that uh, in the 1950s and 60s we can talk about neoliberalism, but we can talk about 
introducing the market to enact certain social changes. Right. Um, and in Algeria, the specificity of the settler colony there is that the Muslim population had been seen as a racial category. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the, the ways in which um, the Constantine Plan does specific work, unlike other development plans we might see uh, in the Middle East or North Africa. But this, this technocrat is an economist, Correct. That you're referring to. So yeah. why is, why is this, I mean, I, I don't understand exactly why there's an implicit sense that um, a Muslim is not a rational actor, I guess, right. in economic theory. Like, is there some background to that? Um, there is a background about what Islam means as a kind of social and cultural code. So something mm-hmm. that interests me that ties in with the post-war context that you were talking about is that it becomes very unfashionable to talk in racialized terms after World War II for obvious reasons. And so scholars have seen this as a shift from cultural, um, sorry, excuse me, from biological to cultural racism. Mm -hmm. So the notion that we talk a lot more about culture um, and that's a way to talk about race without having to talk about skin color or bloodlines. And so what I argue is that the economy becomes one place where the shift from biological to cultural racism is evident. So instead of talking about fanatical subjects or the Algerian mind, one can talk about uh, Muslim aptitudes to the market in a way that's both um, agrees with a certain consensus about sociology and the economy, uh, but also avoids um, a, a language of race that would seem outdated or kind of be cringeworthy in 1958. Mm-hmm. And by this time period, you know, the late 1950s, um, we've got a lot of uh, Algerians who have been trained in uh, French institutions, uh, both in Algeria and in, in, in Paris as well, presumably economists and people with their own ideas about this. How are they involved in this uh, plan? Um, well, one of the h- highest ranking functionaries working on the Constantine plan is Salah Bouakir, mm-hmm. who uh, dies in, in 1961, mm. um, in September. And it's unclear if he is assassinated by the OS mm. or if he drowns while um, out fishing. Uh, um, and this polemic actually... I understand the ambiguity. <laughs> right, which um, I have interviewed actually people who are on that boat who themselves have differing opinions of what happened. So wow. there's a good uh, conspiracy theory there if anybody would like to unpack it. Um, So there, I mean, people like him are involved uh, in these plans, and he's perhaps the most visible example of this, but he's, you know, he's trained in France Mm -hmm. at the Ecole Polytechnique. He's one of the four North Africans who's trained there before 1962. Mm -hmm. Um, So they have a role to play um, in this, um, in this story. Okay. Okay, welcome back to Autumn History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Orly Perrier talking with Miriam Halle Davis about her work on the intersection of colonial development and decolonization during the Algerian War. Uh, Miriam, you've uh, laid down the framework for us very well about um, you know this this new notion of um, social development um, and how it it relates to to race and other issues. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us perhaps uh, in a little bit more detail uh, some of the practices that were uh, associated with uh, either the Constantine Plan or uh, more broadly these new notions um, of development. 
Absolutely. Um, there's already been a lot of work done on attempts to build mass housing, for example, or education. So I deal with that less in the dissertation yeah. um, than I than I do with the questions of agriculture sure. um, and the redistribution of agricultural mm-hmm. lands. So in the domain of, um, of agrarian reform, for example, they try to break up these large concessions that had been given in the 19th century. And they do it in such a way um, that the Algerians who will eventually be receiving these parcels of land have mm-hmm. to understand what private property is. Mm-hmm. So it comes with, a, with certain kinds of certificates, of property ownership and the idea is that they're going to make these Algerian fellas into uh, kind of a French paysan who understands what property is uh, and they give them farmers almanacs that also have surahs from the Quran in them and they try to use these arguments uh, to help them break away from subsistence farming and produce for the market. So here you can see how they invoke kind of a religious register uh, in favor of a market economy. Right. And, and these are presumably spaces in Algeria that are particularly maybe untouched by some of the market forces and capitalist developments that have already been occurring, especially among the settler community in Algeria. I mean, the land reform you described is similar to what they did in the, the middle of the 19th century, trying to introduce private property and these things. So what are these, what are these spaces maybe where this, what is the main front, I guess, of this developmental uh, policy? Um, I mean, I think it's important to keep in mind that these are very restrained policies. So this is not something that's happening on a large scale. Mm -hmm. Um, So the examples I have, I use as kind of anecdotes to get at how my technocrats are thinking about property and Islam, because they're certainly not widespread. Um, Mm -hmm. Many of the territories that are being divided up for redistribution never get to another owner. Um, So it's really... uh, mainly the, the concessions that are given in the 19th century. But mm-hmm. geographically, um, Constantine uh, around Oran. You've uh, used the word technocrat a few times now, and um, I think it's, it's an interesting word. Um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how your work fits in on uh, in, in the large, larger body of, of scholarship that's been done uh, analyzing the relationship between technocracy, uh, the rule of law, and then uh, colonial spaces. So I'm thinking, of course, of Timothy Mitchell's uh, famous book, um, uh, Rule of Experts, um, and also Mneyel Shakri's uh, more recent book, The Great Social Laboratory. Um, so how does your work uh, fit into this? Um, do you see overlap between what's going on uh, in Algeria in this time and other colonial spaces, or is there some kind of specificity um, to, to Algeria? Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. I mean, Omnia Shakri's work has been very important for how I think about the social sciences and their role mm-hmm. in development. And I think one of her major interventions is to show how these ideas that are coming out of the social sciences influence nationalism um, and how they're taken on by the independent state. And that's something that in Algeria has been completely a discussion that's been lacking because of the very specificity of Algeria. So it's difficult to talk about the continuities with 1962 mm-hmm. and afterwards because it was such a violent war of independence and yeah. because the rupture of 1962 has taken on such a big place both in the nationalist Algerian historiography and also in the mm-hmm. French historiography. Um, and so what I, what I find is that by focusing on expertise, um, one can unpack this, this break and one can see how certain ways of functioning um, both on the state level but 
also on the local level, continues after 1962. Um, I mean, the question of laboratories of modernity was was Algeria a laboratory of modernity that yeah. was then repatriated back into France mm -hmm. somehow um, I think works less well in Algeria than in other cases because there was so much circulation uh, that it wasn't it wasn't so clear-cut what direction the flow was going sure. in um, and there was also a lot of movement within kind of imperial space after 1962 mm -hmm. so um, I think it's both in direct di dialogue with you know, qu questions that Mitchell and Shekri raise, um, but it's in the context of a settler colony that's sp very specific in other ways. Well, some of what you said reminded me of a conversation we featured on the podcast uh, earlier last year uh, between Graham Pitts and Shireen Seikli, who, who Shireen Seikli's new book, Men of Capital, deals with Palestinian uh, capitalists and mandate uh, Palestine and sort of how somehow, again, the social sciences or specifically economics fit into uh, a national um, framework. Uh, and so one of the other questions I want to ask uh, in thinking about Shireen's work, which, which looked at, for example, women and how women of thrift, as she calls them, uh, were sort of, uh, you know, the, the women who knew how to properly run an economic home were sort of critical to this larger social uh, development, I guess we could call it in the broader sense. Um, because you, you, have a little, you have a little bit of uh, a, a gendered aspect in, in what you study as well, because you have this um, quotation in your title to your article, uh, where your technocrats, as you've been calling them, uh, refer to uh, their plan as, quote, the transformation of man. And here man is, is a man, right? So tell us about that. Yeah, I think there is a gendered element, certainly to the title and to my work, although I don't frame it around gender, sure. in that one of the goals of the Constantine plan is to form a third force of Algerian Muslims who can be part of the state mm -hmm. um, and help govern Algeria uh, away from the nationalists and, and in, a, in a French framework. Mm -hmm. So in that capacity, mm. that transformation will happen with men. Um, right. And that's mm -hmm. a transformation I work on, which is not to say that they're uninterested in the transformation of women. Right. So what we would see as kind of home economics courses mm -hmm. in Europe certainly happen in Algeria, mm. but as other people have, have shown, um, the Algerians see this as a trespassing on Algerian life mm -hmm. and are very... Are, are very suspicious of attempts to extend right. healthcare. Jennifer Johnson's book, who just came out, looks at this: how the SAS, these mobile health yep. units, try to um, offer services to women and are met by. Um, I mean, Fennel also talks mm -hmm. about this yeah. about um, medicine and, and gender. So, in terms of the Constantine plan and creating Homo economicus, it is a Homo economicus, right? Um, very much so. And and the idea there is also kind of that the, the Homo Islamicus, the you know, there's a there's a patriarchal kind of sensibility and trying to understanding where that you know islamic nature of being is seated right i absolutely. guess in the minds of the french planners right absolutely Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Once again, Chris Creighton and Orly Perrier talking with Miriam Holly Davis about her research on the subject of colonial development, race, and the social sciences during the Algerian War. I want to remind you all that there's a bibliography for today's podcast on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you can also check out a lot of other great episodes. Miriam, you've detailed for us um, 
the um, sort of formation gradually of new notions of, of development and the social sciences. And I'm wondering if um, any of what happened uh, in that period is still relevant for how we think about development uh, today and uh, specifically the relationship between the two uh, shores of the Mediterranean. Um, I'm reminded here of uh, Sarkozy's project uh, that was uh, put forth a, a couple years ago, uh, the Euro, uh, Euromed, uh, and how his you know whole project envisioned a, a kind of cooperation between the north and the, the southern shores of the Mediterranean. So do we see any precursors to that notion uh, in uh, the Constantine plan? Um, what would you say to that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I. I'm always hesitant to take on the Sarkozy aspect of this, but he did bring up Eurafrique in a very direct manner in his 2006, I believe it's 2006 speech. Um, and I think that speaks to the way that the relationship between the two shores of the Mediterranean is so contested. And economic development, I mean, from the St. Simonians onwards has mm -hmm. been one way of formatting that mm -hmm. relationship. Um, and what I tried to emphasize in my work is that thinking about ideas of racial difference is one way of formatting that, but thinking about markets and economic development is another way of formatting that. Um, so in trying to think about the afterlife of the Constantine plan, you have the immediate afterlife, which is the cooperation policies between French and Al France and Algeria. Um, and you see very clearly that many of the initiatives, many of the institutions continue after 1962. Mm -hmm. um, some of the experts also remain in place. And despite Algeria's reluctance to accept this and their, you know, they prefer to talk about their links with the Soviet Union and with China, um, this is a reality on the ground, that there is still this French expert so, so do any of the uh, independent uh, leaders of Algeria, the nationalists, do they recycle any of these notions that were firstly elaborated by, by the French? Or are they trying to break from that tradition? I would say both in that, for example, for my liberal economists, uh, they claim that Islam is inherently um, anti-liberal, so that there's something inherent in Islam mm. that then gives itself to certain economic behaviors. And the Algerian state turns this on its head and says, no, um, Islam is actually inherently socialist. And there are very mm. interesting debates, um, both between Ben Bella and other politicians, as well as with the ulama, about what is Islamic socialism and what is a specifically Algerian socialism. So the relationship between um, identity um, kind of you know ethnic categories and economic structures remains, um, and in a more concrete level, there are still um, you know French institutions in place that are giving Algerian the Algerian government uh, advice on how to do a census, on how to um, develop agriculture. This doesn't mm -hmm. just go away. Mm -hmm. So. Um, even big symbolic projects um, like the complex at um, the big plant at Bonn, that's a, a metal factory, mm -hmm. goes on to be a symbol for the Algerian nationalists of pride. They turn the goals and the meaning on its head, but a lot of the actual initiatives and assumptions remain in place. And just to go back briefly, you had mentioned, you know, what, what do we make of this in, in 
in more contemporary moments, which I know historians are never supposed to do. So this is a bad model to follow. But I do think that the whole notion of human capital, which right now is really in vogue in Mm -hmm. kind of European development circles, um, absolutely comes from this. I mean, how do you create human capital? Um, What does that mean economically? Um, and, And what kind of training programs do you put in place is something you can see in EU training programs in North Africa yeah. In the current moment. And, and you know, thinking about, you, you had mentioned the creation of the what, the forerunner to the European Union, essentially, and thinking about the European Union's continued uh, engagement with the other side of the Mediterranean, so to speak. You know, this whole issue of, you said, um, the economists you looked at thought of, for example, Muslims as illiberal, like incapable of behaving in, within a liberal economic sense. And you still, see, these discourses are the language that's with us today, sort of a, as you said, the new kind of racism that essentially says like, okay, Muslims will come to Europe, maybe Turkey will join the EU, but are Muslims capable of embracing uh, our European values, which are liberal in a different sense, right? In terms of identity politics. Sure. But the two are not unrelated. And I think that often when people think about the economy or development, it's about creating winners and losers. So the economy is what creates class by creating an people who are not getting their share of the national pie in some way. Uh-huh. And I'm trying to challenge that by saying, no, the economy is also a site that creates identities and racial categories uh-huh. mm. um, through certain su- assumptions about morality, about the social, um, and even about kind of psychological structures. But that's absolutely kind of where I see my intervention yeah. in the field. Well, it's, an, a very, it's a very interesting piece of work uh, for me, someone who's more a little bit more familiar, I guess, orally, it's the same for you, familiar with the earlier periods of uh, mm-hmm. uh, French involvement in Algeria and just seeing how much uh, some of the issues that were raised at the beginning sort of are still relevant at the end and tracing the genealogy of that into, I guess, Europe's present is super interesting. You mentioned San Simonians, for example, yeah. the very people who are involved in mid-19th century French education policy in Algeria, you know, some of the um, things they put out there uh, become the precursor to what you, you've been discussing in a way, right? Absolutely. And a lot of the people working in cooperation look at the St. Simonians as the, the glory days of when Algerians and French were cooperating to build economic structures. So very much drawing on older symbols from the colonial period, even as you have this very modern, liberal, forward-looking state uh-huh. that's trying to integrate your Algeria into Europe. I mean, I think that's where things change is that in 1958, when this is announced, Algeria is not a colony. It's part right. of Europe. Yeah. And so the question is, how do we modernize it to be part of a European space? Um, and that is a very pressing question for the French who don't want to lose Algeria as they join um, the European economic community. Mm. Well, Miriam, it's been nice talking with you today. And uh, this is definitely a subject, of course, it's very important for the study of uh, the history of Algeria. So it, sort of the war beyond the, the fighting, um, but also like very relevant for understanding uh, the history of development um, during uh, the post-World War II period. Uh, and indeed, uh, development is alive and well. And so um, understanding our, our contemporary situation as well. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing your research with us today. Well, thanks, Chris and Orly. This has been lovely. Now, for those who are listening and want to find out more, we've got a bibliography on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com. You can also check out our Facebook group with uh, over 20,000 followers who are checking for the latest uh, episodes and other content through our website. That's all for this episode. Thank you for listening. Join us next time. And until then, take care.